Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors from all over the world. And I believe this book is extremely relevant with what's happening in the world. The book is called Israeli Economy, a story of success and costs. And the, the author, Joseph Zaira, Zaira. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but Joseph, okay. I can't thank you enough for being here on Million Dollar Stories. Thank you. Thank you, too. Well, let's get right into it, man. What made you want to write this book? Uh, the genesis behind it. What What was the the idea that sparked? I need to put this in writing for the world to read. Well, I am a, a professor of uh, economics in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. I've been for many years, although I visited a lot of American universities. I, I visited Harvard for four years, Brandeis, Brown University. Northwestern University for two years and so on. But my main uh, job was in Jerusalem. And, and I've, my main research focused for many years on microeconomics, especially technology and inequality and inflation. And then over the years, I became more and more interested in how to apply my general knowledge into understanding the Israeli economy. So I started to teach a course about the Israeli economy. And, and then while teaching the course, I started also to do research on the Israeli economy, mostly with a colleague in the, in the Bank of Israel. But I also published one paper on inflation in Israel with Thomas Chuck Sargent, who is a very famous economist from NYU, who is a Nobel Prize laureate. So Sargent and myself published one paper on the Israeli economy, but with the other colleague, I published something like four other papers. So I, at some point, and then in 2011, we had big demonstrations of youth for more uh, social equality in Israel. And I felt suddenly that all that I was researching and teaching could help these people to understand better the problems of the Israeli economy. So I started to write a book toward that time in 2013, 2014, and then I published a first version in Hebrew because I wanted first to talk to my fellow countrymen. So the Hebrew version came out in 2018. Hmm. And then I was teaching the, the material and that course in Northwestern, and I did it for two years. And then I kind of understood better how should the book look in English, because it's very different from the Hebrew version. It's more updated. There were many issues that I understand better when I came second time to the material. But most importantly, it has a different focus, because the book in Hebrew was trying to explain to Israel how their economy works. Well, in the, in the English version, I wanted to ask myself a different question. What can people learn from the experience of the Israeli economy in general? Mm. What they can learn about their own countries? So I think that, in a sense, the focus in the, in the English edition is very different. Well, most of my audience lives in the United States. How is the Israeli economy different than the U.S.-based economy? Well. It's, it's very similar in some issues, like the structure of the economy, the large weight for the high-tech industry, 
but it's also very different. First of all, you know, Israel is a much smaller economy and it experienced very strong shocks. Shocks, uh, I, I will talk a bit more about it later, but basically when you hit an economy with a big shock, you can learn a lot from that shock, mm-hmm. how it affects the economy. Because if you're a big country like the U.S., that got hit all the time with small, relatively many, many different shocks, it's very hard to identify the effect of each shock. While in Israel, it's much easier because we had big waves of immigration. Maybe you could compare it to America in the 19th century, but I don't know too much about that period in the States. But in Israel, we had during the last 70, 80 years, many big immigration shocks. When you have big wars, like the Yom Kippur War in 73, or when you have a peace agreement like with Egypt, all these are shocks that enable you to study them, and then you can learn whether economic theory makes sense or not. Hmm. And I'll come back to that later, because it's part of the message of this book. Well, what is right now? Obviously, there's so much in the news. I don't know what's going on because I, I hear stuff through uh, the muddy waters in the, through the media. So I don't know what's happening. But what is it like? You're 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 right there. You're seeing everything firsthand. So what is life like there, and how is it affecting the economy at this uh, stage? Well, one of the things I show in my book, and I think that we're beginning to see it again, is that clashes with the Palestinians always cause a recession. You know, recession is caused usually when you have a decline in domestic demand demands for, for goods, for economic, for, for consumption and so on, and investment. So usually clashes with the Palestinians reduce tourism. You know, I, I'm in Rome now for a short visit. And the airport in Tel Aviv was extremely empty. It was really sad to go through mm. the customs and everything. It was just empty. So no tourism. People go out less and therefore they shop less. And the most important thing is that investors invest much less because there is a lot of uncertainty. No one knows how long the war will be, how wide it will be. All this knowledge is missing. It's similar in a sense to the second intifada, which took something like five years, no, four years. And it also created a very deep recession because uncertainty reduces investments. And when investors are, the thing they hate most is uncertainty Mm -hmm. and risk. So this is what we sense. Now, as for the war itself, I live in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is fairly safe in a sense. But there are some areas where people have to run twice a day to a shelter. Like my daughter, with her two-and-a-half-year-old child, who is my grandson. And sometimes I myself experience it when I go and help her. But but this is minor relatively, I must say. I mean, I went through the War of Yom Kippur in 1973. That was a much more terrible war. Hmm. First of all, the number of Israeli casualties was in 21 days, it was twice as much as now within two months. So it was like uncomparable. 
And, and we were not, like you know, we, we can condemn the crimes of the Hamas and things like this, but it's not a, it's not an existential threat to Israel. I mean, this is a small militia with no armor, with no fancy technology. It, it's not like fighting the Egyptian army or the Syrian army that were conventional armies with right. air force, with artillery. We, we, and, you know, it's uncomparable. What we went through in 73, and not many people remember it because, you know, I'm not so young anymore. And I was in the regular army then. So most people didn't even experience it. Hmm. I, I don't blame them. I mean, I understand. But people like me are already immune against the fear that comes with, with this new war. And there is fear. But let me tell you how it's related to my book. Because basically my book does three things. The first thing is to estimate the exact cost of the Israeli-Arab conflict. How much it really cost us. Not just the, the military costs. The military costs are minor. There are additional costs, and I'll explain them in a moment. The second thing the book does is what I described before, is to use the effect that Israel is a small economy hit by big shocks in order to test economic theory. And actually, I find that the standard economic theory of inflation, of a trade balance, trade deficits and trade surpluses, of economic growth, all these theories are really validated by the experience of Israel. We re uh, if you test these theories on the Israeli economic history, they work well, which is a very positive thing. It shows that we can use these theories in order to analyze problems, even of the U.S., which is quite big and complex. But it, we know that these economic theories that economists developed over the last 50, 60, 70 years work well, at least in Israel, where we can test them in a good way. And the third part of the book, I examine the experience of Israel with neoliberal policies. You know, neoliberal policies are policies that try to reduce government expenditures on the one hand and lower taxes on the other hand. It's usually like the Republicans vis-a-vis -vis the Democrats. Wow. Okay. And that's neoliberalism in your in your definition? That's that's in the general term for such policies like the Republicans, neoliberalism. Gotcha. Okay. And even and Israel experienced a fantastic example of neoliberal policies. Because its size of government in 1973, by the, by the peak of the war, was 80% of GDP. 80% of our output went to, to, to the public sector. Mostly defense, but not only defense. Wow. Today, it's 40, 40%. So it went down by half. This is a huge, interesting, what we call sometimes natural experiment and it was caused by by an outside shock which is the peace with egypt the peace with egypt enables us to reduce defense cost and defense related costs in a big way and i show <clears throat> that despite that 
What many neoliberals claim that this is the way to make the economy grow faster or grow better if you reduce the public sector, it doesn't hold, it doesn't fit the facts in Israel. Wow. The rate of economic growth remained stable since seven, the 70s all the way to the current time. Didn't change much. Hmm. The only effect of these policies was the increase of inequality. It increased inequality. Because if you reduce income taxes, income taxes is, is some of the mechanism that enables us to have a slightly more equal economy. Because who, who pays the higher in, income tax? Usually the rich. Right. So this is the analysis, and I think that it's interesting. And it's relevant for people who are thinking about economic policy everywhere, and especially in the U.S. Interesting. You know, I, if you look at anything I promote, I'm a free capitalist. I believe that is the only way um, to raise the, the tides for everyone. And it sounds to me like uh, there's proof there that shows that just because you limit the spending on government doesn't automatically mean that individuals are going to take it and run uh, and, 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 and grow on their own. There's got to be let something me, else. Let me be a bit more accurate. I see your point, and definitely the Israeli experience tells us that it doesn't always hold. On the other hand, we have to be careful, and we have to collect. I mean, there is nothing like to completely prove a point in the social sciences. You gather data that supports some position, or you gather data that supports the alternative position, and, and, and that's the way you make progress. So I think, I think indeed that economic growth is, is determined by other factors, not by the size of the public sector or, or not by the level of taxation, but mostly by technology and by education, by investment in education. There you go. And and at least in Israel, most of the investment in education was by the public sector. I think even in the U.S., the most is by the public sector, but not not as high. I think in the Israel in the U.S., like seventy percent of the education costs are paid by the by the government, while in some other countries, like in Sweden, it's close to ninety five percent of the education costs paid by the government. In Israel, it's something closer to 80%. But so Israel is somewhere in between the US and, and uh, Sweden. The average citizen in, uh, in Israel, uh, would you classify them as entrepreneurial or would you classify them as someone who is looking for that steady job? And the reason why I ask that is because I'm looking at the United States and different states have... Uh, have different cultures. Texas, Florida, very entrepreneurial. You go to California, a little bit entrepreneurial, but more so they are, they're looking for maybe some of that universal basic income. So depending on where you're at in the country, there's different vibes. So in Israel, have you noticed that individuals like to have their well, own businesses? They say, they, own say business? about, they say about Israel that it's the startup nation. The people oh, are very okay. entrepreneurial. Very nice. I like it. It's, it's a bit exaggerated. Let's put it this way. I think that it mostly depends on, on the individual characters. 
You know, people who are more risk averse, people who hate risk, would prefer a steady job over entrepreneurial uh, career. They want they want their safety. They want to reduce the risk in their life. While people who are risk more less risk averse, let's put it this way, might become entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Now, the the question whether it's because of the individual characters or the state is very difficult to test empirically, because it could be that California doesn't make the people they're more entrepreneurial, but it attracts people who are more risk of uh, risk neutral, and they want to have such an entrepreneurial career. So I I don't know about it, and I didn't actually I didn't study it. I try usually to talk only about things I really studied, <laughs> so I'm careful about it. Uh, sounds like it. Okay, so so these are the three parts of the book. Now I must add, since it's in the in the news now, all the issue of war, I must add something about the cost of the conflict. And I'm talking now not about the budgetary military cost. These are high. Th- these are usually in Israel something around in the last forty years. Uh, 30, 40 years, these are around 6% of GDP. They used to be much higher when we were fighting both with Egypt and with Syria, but but after the peace with Egypt, it went down significantly because we're not fighting conventional wars any longer. By the way, there is talk now in Israel after the current conflict that they will increase the military costs significantly. So I'm not sure how, how they'll be in the long run. But in the last 20 years, they were closer to 6 5% of GDP. GDP is the total output of the country, or you can say it's similar to the income in a sense. Hmm. So 6% of our income went to defense. But we had m- much higher costs. Some of the costs are costs that you don't really count. For example, when you build an apartment in Israel, when you buy a new apartment, it has to be one of the rooms must be fortified against exactly against situations like now that there are some rockets and so on. Now, who pays to fortify these rooms? The buyer of the apartment. It's us, the citizens. It's not in the defense budget, although it's a purely cost of the conflict. So I'm calculating all these costs, but the most important costs are two costs that are what we call in economics uh, let me describe it more in in regular words. These are costs that you don't see them, but they are costs nonetheless because you could have much higher output, much higher income if there was no conflict. And there are two such costs. One is due to conscription. You know, kids in Israel at the age of 18, instead of going college or to, to work, they go to the army. Boys go for three years, girls go to two years. Usually the army service is not easy and it's depressing. So after that, they spend one more year traveling somewhere abroad. It became almost a routine for everyone who was in the army. One year travel in the big world, like either South America or Southeast Asia. So basically it's four years at least for men, 
three years at least for women. Wow. So when I, that means that when they enter the 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 you know the the labor market when they go to college when they go to work they do everything with a delay with a big delay and usually we do not start immediately with our top income it takes us it's a long process of raising your income over the years both through studying and also through experience on the job all this happens but with a delay so I calculate what does the delay mean using the figures and the numbers of those who work and those who served and didn't serve and so on. And this in itself costs us something more than 4% of GDP. Wow. Okay, but lo- look, there is a much bigger cost. When I co- Israel, when I compare the amount of capital used in production, and I mean capital not financial capital, but physical capital, like structures, machines, equipment. We have much less than the US, even much, even more or less than in Europe. But let's focus, let's compare Israel to the US. Like the ratio between capital and output and income in the US is 1.6. And the ratio in Israel, it's only one. That means that with the same number of workers, we produce much less. Even with the same technology, with the same know-how, we still produce less because we are using less equipment, less structures, and so on. So the question is why? It's because investors are investing less. So I I checked it and, and I realized that according to the economic explanation, this must be a result of higher risk. Investors are investing less because they're afraid of some risk. And what can be a risk that holds on for so many years different than the U.S.? It's the risk of the conflict. So the conflict, and that explains, without this high risk, if our risk was similar to the U.S. risk, we could increase our output by 26%. So we could have higher income by 26%. If you add to that that four from the conscription, you get 30%. This is a huge loss. Jeez. And this is explained in my book in detail. It's interesting. Now, this is one part. And then comes the part of showing how economic theory really works nice. For example, our economic growth, usually economists explain economic growth by two factors. One is called human capital and the other is called technology. So a country is both expanding the level of education and that increases human capital and that increases your output and your capacity to produce. And the second thing is adopting the technology at the frontier of the technology. Now, Israel in the past has grown very fast. And what I show in my book that expanding our education system contributed a lot to that. It's contributed almost 40% of our economic growth is due to education. It's basically due to the public sector, public education. And then the rest is due to technology. And the reason was that we joined the growth process late. We started to grow at 1920, 
something like that. When, when, when we started to immigrate to Palestine. And you said 1922, right? That's whenever 90,000 Jews in Palestine. I think as I read that in there. And yes, but, but since nine then, million, right? The after like that. that, the numbers started to grow. Yeah. I'm say, I'm taking 1922 because that's the beginning of the statistics in, in that period. Gotcha. It, it's, the, it's the beginning of the British mandate of the country. They were ruling it slightly before from 17, 1917, but in 1922, they got the mandate. It's a small detail. It's not so important. But anyway... We could we could grow fast because we could use a lot of technologies that were already invented before. Mm. But of course, that doesn't mean that other countries can follow it. Because in order to adopt technologies, you need also to buy the machines that are ingrained in them. Like, for example, you need to buy tractors in order to use tractor technology. You need to buy airplanes in order to do flight technology. You need to buy ships and so on. And luckily, during the British mandate, we had the money to do it because the immigrants brought with them money. They came from Eastern Europe. They were not very rich, but they had enough to, to, to finance all these growth, all these uh, investments. And then there was a period that the immigrants had no money after the Holocaust. But then came the German reparation money in 1952 when the Germans signed an agreement with Israel to help it in the process of, of, of rebuilding itself. Wow. So that, that helped us significantly, enabled us to continue to grow fast. So anyway, what I show is that, so it's really the economic theory, but you, you cannot sell it to developing countries today. Because they might know how to do it, but they won't have enough money to finance it. You have to finance all these machines. You have to finance all these investments. You have to finance an investment in a good educational system. And that's very hard when you don't have the money for that. So it's not, it's important to understand this mechanism on the one hand, but you have to be aware of it that it cannot be used easily in other countries. When it comes to human capital and education, I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I've noticed a difference in people um, I'm friends with that come from Israel. It seems to me that the education system is a little stronger in Israel than it is in the U.S. And maybe you can kind of attest to it or you know decline my uh, statement there because I've realized that in America, the education system, it seems to be on a, uh, on a decline itself. So I don't think the financial literacy is there. I don't think people are making great decisions simply by what they're being taught in school, which leads to overconsumption. And then that might actually spark the economy, but that also gets them to be in debt. And in debt means being controlled. And therefore, the government steps in and says, I'll be your knight in shining armor. Um, is that same thing happening in Israel? Are you noticing the education system a little stronger when it comes to financial liter literacy? I usually don't look at financial literacy because uh, I, I don't understand much about it, being an economics professor myself. But I do look, I, I, I've been a lot in American universities on the one hand, and on the other hand, my daughters studied in American schools. 
So I, I, I have some feeling. I must say that they studied in American schools that are relatively good because they were close to Harvard and MIT in the Boston area. So they're not typical. Gotcha. But, but so the, the picture is complex. I, I think that all in all, the education system in Israel is good. But for, first of all, I have to be fair with you. I mean, uh, I'm not fully objective on these issues. I worked in a university all my life. My wife is a university professor. We benefit from the educational system in Israel. So I, I, I take my words with a grain of salt. <laughs> You're an honest man, okay? though. Yeah, I, I no, and, I'm, I, I'm, no, I, Mike. I'm going to be fair with you all the way. I like it. I like it. I, 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 if you hear my other podcast, I think one of the reasons why uh, America is in the decline that it is is simply because of the education system. And I think that I've been around enough multimillionaires that they are they're they're training their kids a certain way that goes completely against what what kids in public school are being trained. So I was wondering if there's any type of similarities or contrast within that, uh, within I, Israel. So, No, I, I think we have a good education system, but it, it has a problem. I'll explain to you in a moment what's its problem. But we, but I think that the, even the American education system is not, is not of one type and one color. Like you have the, the, I mean, my daughters went to the devotion school in Brookline Massachusetts, which mm. is a fantastic school. I wish we had schools like this in Israel. I wish. It's amazing. The quality of the teaching, the quality of the material, everything. Gotcha. But I know that there are many schools in the U.S. that look very different. Even within Massachusetts itself, if you go to a poor town, it would be much worse. Very different. You're right. So the I, I I mean, we, we should be aware of it. I mean, I did some research on inequality in my life. That's one of the topics that I helped to start even in macroeconomics. And, and I'm aware of these problems. Or if you look at universities, the top universities in the U.S., at least, I mean, they are fantastic. I mean, I know mostly people in economics. And I spent time in the economics departments, as I told you, of Harvard and MIT and uh, and Northwestern and Columbia, they are great schools. They are fantastic schools. We have none in Israel that comes even closer to them. But we have seven universities that are all of them quite good, while the variety in the U.S. is much bigger. So the average, I, I, I don't know, we cannot usually calculate averages, but but... There is a much larger distribution in the U.S., while well, in Israel we are more similar. Of course, the Hebrew and Tel Aviv are better than the others one, but they are not that different. Now, what is the problem in the Israeli education system? I'll tell you. And it's a big problem in Israel in general. It's the problem of high fertility. We have too many children. Wow. <laughs> in Israel, it's... It's not allowed to speak about it because we're, we have the ethos of that it's good to have more children. But it's also an economic burden. A woman in Israel on average has 3.1 children. <laughs> Listen carefully, Mike, 3.1. Much different than here. The average in the OECD countries is 1.7. So it's almost twice as much. Population in Israel is growing by 10% every year. 
So one of the results is a huge problem in, in housing, for example. You always have to build more and more housing and you stretch your resources and that raises the prices of housing. So it's becoming more. This is one of the biggest problems in Israel. Young couples find it very hard to buy a house. Now, that is one problem. The second problem is, of course, naturally, huge traffic problems. We have roads that are almost clogged down from morning to evening. And there, and, and there, there is another reason that the government neglected uh, trains and, and public transportation and, and metro systems in a criminal way, really criminal. There's no better word for that. But that's a different problem. But there's also a problem in the education system. Think about a, a society that grows by 2% every year. You have always to increase the education system, train more and more teachers, build new schools, new classes. The system hardly copes with it. It's very difficult. So the new teachers are not as good as the older ones, but they have to learn you know, the hard way. I, by ruining our children. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't really uh, think about that until, I mean, um, you, when until it comes it to you just practicality, face. yeah, it, you do need to hire new people, new buildings, new systems. And it, when it's new, it's, it's, it's going to have a lot of mistakes built in is what you're saying. Naturally. Phenomenal. Um, one question I want to get to before we run out of time, the BRICS. Uh, I'm looking at the gold standard being removed in 1971 as one of the most instrumental things in the United States history. And I think that the more they keep printing money, other countries are not going to have uh, the American dollar um, as the uh, the backed currency. So BRICS coming up is a threat to U.S. and potentially other countries. How will that affect is the Israeli economy? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. Actually, I would like to think about, I would like to live in a world where the BRICS would not be a, 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 a danger to the U.S., but rather something good, because you, you can trade between the BRICS and, and the U.S. So, you know, economists believe that trade benefits both sides. That's a very basic tenet in, in economic thinking since the time of David Ricardo, 200 years ago, that both sides benefit because every side has a comparative advantage. And I think it's true. Okay, the problem, of course, is the problem of, of dollars, that the U.S., by, by in a sense, by keeping the world on a dollar basis, can gain from the senior rush from the dollar. But I think that these gains are not so big. They are highly exaggerated. I haven't seen a calculation of how much the U.S. gains from seniorage, but I don't think it's very big. But this is something that we should check. But I would say I, I would prefer to live in a world where the BRICS or even China wouldn't be necessarily an enemy, but would be someone you trade with and you trade for the benefits of both sides because it's a win-win thing. That's the basic the basic lesson from capitalism, in a sense, the trade, the barter benefits both sides. Yes. Yes, I agree. So you're not too concerned then. It sounds like you're looking, you're not looking forward to it, but you're not concerned at all. So it's not a big deal, right? 
living living in a country that lives in a kind of so far a, a long run conflict I really have different priorities <laughs> it's a good way to look at but, it sir but let's connect what we talk now you promised me that at the end I'll be yes able to show... yes please show me your screen I want to show the book <laughs> and explain this to uh to our viewers I'll be happy to do it. Okay, you see, this is the picture of uh, the cover of my book. It's called The Israeli Economy, yes. A Story of Success and Costs. Clearly, the success is the fact that Israel grew from a very you know, low-income country in, in, a, in a very poor region of the world into one of the 30 richest countries in the world. That's a truly amazing success. But it has costs, and the costs are the costs of the conflict and also some social costs because of ethnic divisions within the country. So first of all, I have a picture here of the market in Jerusalem. The central Jewish market in Jerusalem is called the Machna Yehuda market. And you can see that it's full with fruits of all kinds, because in Israel we do have lots of vegetables and lots of fruits, and it, it's very healthy food. It's also a little bit against the, you know, a lot of people say, oh, Israel, it's the high-tech nation, startup nation, it's only high-tech. I said, no, it's not high-tech. We have also low-tech. And the market is low-tech, and it's also part of our economy. And the other reason is it's a market. And, you know, Israel is a market economy. Some people claim that it used to be socialist once in the, in the past. It was never socialist. It's always been a market economy and still is. And it, in a sense, it makes it easier to analyze it and to learn from it. So here is a market economy and here's the market in action. So that's why I, I asked the, the publisher to put a picture of the Machne uh, Yehuda market on the cover. And indeed, they found a nice picture and put it there. Excellent. Yeah, so it... I think I heard that before too. They used to be socialists. That's not that's not the case. Yeah, uh, in the book I write in length about it. It's not the case. No. Yeah, oh, interesting. The government the government was active in the first stages of the state, mostly for national needs. When there was a need to absorb the immigrants, they intervened in the economy. When there was a need after sixty seven, when the conflict intensified, when there was a need to build. Military industries, they built a lot of military industries. But then they reduced them again after the peace with Egypt. Does the capital, um, Jerusalem, right? That's where we, uh, There's always this battle, right? Which is the capital? And I don't know where your heart lies, but uh, does it matter to the economy? What is the capital? I would assume maybe it comes down to tourism, but maybe uh, government no. spending. No. Actually, historically, the area of Tel Aviv was always much... Jerusalem is a very poor city. It's the capital, but there's no, bus, there's no real, like, much business in, in Jerusalem. Most of the business is around the Tel Aviv and Haifa, which is closer to the sea, after all, and closer to the easy routes. I mean, traveling around Jerusalem, because it's hilly, you know, it's 800 meters high, it's it's a bit difficult, and it's not... So Jerusalem is a poor city because it's a public sector city. Who, who lives there? People from the university or people from the government 
or municipality, not big incomes. It's a poor city for many other reasons. So it's not important for the economy, but it's very important nationally and historically because mm-hmm. it has always been a capital. And I think it was a capital because it has an important strategic role because it sits on the top of the mountains that go across the country from, from south to north. <laughs> like when you put a city in a small area on the Rocky Mountains, which controls passages through the country, then it becomes important strategically. I will say that which is, uh, it, it's on my bucket list. I want to go there someday simply because uh, I'm a Christian. And you know, my whole life, I've been hearing about Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives and all of this historical stuff to the religion. And um, I want to go. Just I'm going to hold off for a little bit until this conflict's over, just so you know. <laughs> so meanwhile, you can go and vi- have you ever been to Rome where I'm now? Yes, I was in Rome for three months in 2005. Oh, yeah, you told me that. You told me that, yeah. Okay, so Rome and Jerusalem have a lot of connections, but I will not talk about it, except for one thing. You know, what's the most important place in Rome? Uh, It's St. Peter's Cathedral, right? You said it. Who was St. Peter? Was a Jew from Jerusalem who came to Rome and immediately was... was, Beheaded, or uh, upside down. He was, was, yep, he was crucified upside down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but he was from us. He was from Jerusalem. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was there. I would, did, did you go through? Do you go to the Vatican and everything now that while you're in? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. I've been here, I've been teaching here for seven years, so I know the place. You know it. But right. by the way, speaking about Jerusalem and the, uh, the whole country of Israel is important from a geostrategic point. And that's, it's not a coincidence that also all the big religions were connected to the city, to the town, to the country, because Israel is the only land connection between three continents, Africa, the origin of of mankind, Asia, and Europe. You cross within Palestine, within Israel. Hmm. So it's very important. That's why we're fighting so much. I mean, I wish we were less important. We are. Oh, I, I see you as an optimist, but um, you know, from an economic standpoint, do you see this as you know nothing's going to hurt it that bad? So it's gonna it's going to come out uh, stronger, or it's looking good, or how do you feel about everything regarding this this conflict that's that's going on? Okay, let let me say something which is important. I mean, in this in this interview, I mostly talk like an economics professor. This is my 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 profession. This is my I'm a researcher in economics. Now you ask me a question where that I I do not use my knowledge as a professor of economics. And I want it to be clear because I, I don't want people to think that that's what my science says. Right. I mean, this is my individual opinion. I studied it a lot of times because I studied also the economics of the conflict. So I studied it a bit more, but still, uh, what I believe is that the only thing that will enable Israel to stay in the long run in the Middle East is to reach a peace agreement with its neighbors. And first and foremost, with the Palestinians. I mean, and the, the, 
The outline of this agreement is fairly well known. I mean, we should have what used to be Israel before 67, and they should get the Gaza Strip and the West Bank and form a state, a Palestinian state in these territories, which is called the two-state solution, basically. And I believe that there is no alternative to it, or there is an alternative, which is uh, forever fighting. But forever fighting is not a steady state because each round, the costs become higher and higher. The, in human life, not about, I'm not talking now about the economic cost, which I studied as well. You know, in the first Intifada in 87, started in 87, the number of Israelis killed was less than 200. In the second Intifada in 2001, 2004, uh, 1,000 died. This time, we already at the very beginning lost something like 12, 1,300, and it's not over yet, and people are still being killed. So every round becomes worse than those before. So there's, it's not a steady state continuing the, the, the conflict. It's leading to disasters. So the alternative, I think, is straightforward, is to, is to reach an agreement. And this is, this is something that personally I was hoping for and trying to striving for all my life. Well, it's, uh, it, it's definitely, I guess, a scary time from you know the outside looking in. It just looks wild. So uh, our prayers are with you, man. And uh, guys, the book is called The Israeli Economy, A Story of Success and Cost. And uh, Joseph, you are a wealth of knowledge. You obviously know your stuff and uh, you're very uh, well thought out in your uh, in your solutions and your communication. You can articulate your ideas very well. So I really appreciate your time. And uh, guys, pick up his book. Is there anything else you want to add to the podcast there, Joseph? No, I just want to thank you for choosing my book and me for this podcast. And you did a great job in, in interviewing and in leading the conversation. And I really look forward to to look at it. Absolutely. And to send to send links to all my family in the US. Excellent. Thank you so much. Guys, remember, a million dollar book will lead to a million dollar life. Right on.